See, when Paul arrived in Jerusalem in around 58 or 59 AD, the temple was being transformed in a very real way, not physically, not materially, structurally, or anything like that, but it was being changed from a house of prayer unto a political powder keg. Over the previous 50 years, Judea had been reduced from being an independent king ruled by a at least quasi-Jewish king into now it was a small third-class Roman province governed by bureaucrats. And we all know the joy of being governed by bureaucrats. Most of them of highly questionable integrity. Because many of the Roman governors in particular saw these postings as opportunities to build their own personal fortunes and they used any way that they could possibly do that. Much like our world today, political office was a path to wealth more than any other way. Self-rule had been taken away. The office of the high priest was sold to the highest bidder. And the temple money changers and those who provided the sacrificial animals cheated the people and extorted from them funds because there was no place else. It was a monopoly if you wanted to make a sacrifice or an offering. Even out of obedience to the command of Scripture, you had to exchange your money for temple money at a very high rate. You had to purchase their animals because only their animals would be approved for sacrifice. And therefore, it became a huge money-making service. In fact, many historians believe that the way that the high priest was able to afford purchasing his office, which he had to do every two years, paying off the Roman government for the right to continue as high priest, was that basically he had to make his money off these concessions. All which lead, led Jesus to basically turn over their tables twice and drive them out with a cord of whips and say to them, as in Luke 19, he said, my fa father's house is a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of three thieves and of merchandise. Anger against all these <clears throat> illegitimate priests and these Romans who kept them in power grew increasingly. In fact, we have Gamaliel back in chapter 5 who kind of gives us a historical accounting of the disruptions that had been marking the Jewish community for the previous 50 years. He said, some time ago, Thutis appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean, or Galanitis as the historians refer to him, appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt, and he too was killed, and all of his followers were scattered. Even the centurion who arrests or rescues Paul from the crowd, as we'll see next time, he says, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out in the desert some time ago? <laughs> in fact, the historian Josephus tells us at this time there were tens of thousands of other disorders in Judea, leading to a long series of clashes in which Romans, small groups of Jews offered sporadic resistance to the Romans, who in turn responded with severe countermeasures. These countermeasures would have included the two men who were crucified on each side of Jesus. You see, it's really kind of a, a mistranslation of the text that says he was crucified between two thieves. Romans didn't crucify thieves. You were only crucified for one of two reasons, either insurrection or murder or both. An insurrection, I hate to tell you this, also involved just not paying your taxes. So if you didn't pay your taxes, you were an insurrectionist. So tread lightly. As our government is seeking to expand to double the size of the IRS to make it the largest bureaucracy in the world, it's going to be interesting to see how that future plays out for most people. Just what I need is more people looking at my tax returns. But this includes these men who were not just common criminals, they undoubtedly were part of the zealot movement, which was actively revolting and would often go into the cities and murder various Roman soldiers and Roman officials in order to undermine the Roman government that was controlling their nation. We know at least of five major rebellions in the hundred years leading up to the uh, final revolution or revolt in 66 AD. 
so that it was common to see the roads lined with crucified rebels. That was what Pilate loved to do. He would put crosses up and down the streets, all the roads leading into Rome, and from them would be hanging the decayed bodies of men and women who had been crucified because they had joined in some revolt against the Roman government. They were often attacked by Romans who were Romans in uniform, but they were not actually Roman citizens. Even then, many of them had never been to Rome. They Like the centurion, these soldiers were conscripts. They were auxiliaries who had been recruited from the Greek-speaking countries around Israel. Most particularly, many of them were Samaritans. And if you know anything about the hatred of the Jews for the Samaritans, and even the greater hatred of the Samaritans for the Jews, you realize that they were being policed by people who literally hated their guts and looked for every opportunity they could to harm them. These soldiers often would rob the people, they would abuse them, they would beat them, they would imprison them and even murder them if they gave any opposition to their authority or they hesitated to follow a single order. It's only then when we begin to realize when Jesus said, if a soldier commands you to carry his pack a mile, carry it two miles. Because it wasn't a Roman regular that was doing this. They were these Samaritans who would do it simply to aggravate, frustrate, and provoke people into a response so that they might beat them and even kill them. Partial evidence of their actions is revealed in the question that they actually asked Jesus. They had listened to the teaching of Jesus and these soldiers were so impacted by what he said that they asked him a question. What should we do? In other words, what do we need to do to get right with God? And the answer was, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely and be content with your pay, with your wages. Because they were guilty of all these sorts of things. I remember years ago when the Soviet Union collapsed and we started taking outreach teams into Russia Most of the police officers weren't getting regular pay. In fact, some of them would go two, three, four months without getting a salary. And so how did they survive? Well, they would see these Americans walking around. And they had a really interesting system. You see, you had to be, you had to have a stamp on your visa for every every city that you went to. You had to go to what was called the Ovir's office and get this stamp to say that you could be in that city. The problem is, if you were going to be in that city less than two weeks, they wouldn't stamp your visa. It wasn't worth their time. And so the police would stop you and say, let me see your stamp. Well, they knew we didn't have one. And so we would have to pay them bribes. We had five young people who decided that they weren't going to do it. And they got arrested and put in jail. And they sat in there for several hours until finally the police realized they're not going to give us any money. Okay, just get out of here and move on. But at the same time, I would tell people, don't get too angry with them because they're just simply trying to feed their families. And we're the only source. Only by stealing from us can they get any money to buy food for their families. Well, it was that kind of situation, and yet it was far worse. Not only did the Romans turn a blind eye to all of these abuses, but many times the governors themselves were the provocateurs. They did things that would genuinely humiliate the Jews because that was a Roman way of showing that you were superior and they were inferior. Well, it all comes to a head just a few years after this riot that Paul was caught into in 66 AD, the Zealot Party. Remember Simon Zelotes, Simon the Zealot, one of Jesus' disciples? He was part of this revolutionary group. It would almost like somebody coming into our church and saying, well, I used to be part of Antifa, but now I'm a follower of Jesus. Simon Zelotes, Simon the Zealot, he is one of the disciples. And we find that the Zealot party took control of Jerusalem. They assassinated the high priest and many of his followers and went into open revolt against Rome. It didn't work out real well. Eventually, the city and the temple were both destroyed. And it would be another 1,900 years before Israel would ever be reconfigured as a nation as it exists today. When Herod the Great built the temple, starting in about 27 BC, 
He also built a massive fortress against the northern side, the northern wall of the temple building. He called it the Antonia Fortress after his sponsor, a man by the name of Mark Antony. You may have heard his name. He was part of, he, Mark Antony and Caesar divided the empire between them. Mark Antony built this, or he built this fortress. It, was, it held a cohort, or literally 600 Roman soldiers. And they were there for one purpose. They were anticipating a revolt that they knew would come at some time or other because it always did. These soldiers would stand sentry on the walls, looking down upon the temple, watching for any sign of any kind of disturbance that could explode into a riot. And their quick response in saving Paul's life was done not because they cared about Paul one way or another. They just simply wanted to make sure that nothing got out of control. Because their job was to maintain what was called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. The Romans realized that disturbances affected commerce and were not good for anybody. So their job was to keep people quiet and pacified as much as possible. And if some Jews were killed in the process, well, you got to break some eggs if you want to make an omelet, as Caesar once said. But importantly, I think mobs and rioting and vigilante justice were all things that were expressly forbidden within the Mosaic law. And it was also illegal in Roman law as well. Remember when Paul in chapter 19 is also involved in a riot with the Ephesians rising up against the church. They're very upset and, and, and want to rip the Christians limb from limb. And they're finally stopped by the rulers of the city who simply saved the crowd. We are in danger of being charged with rioting. It was a law under Rome, a, a crime under Roman law. Rioting was against the law. You know, they weren't as evolved as we are where it's not, no longer against the law. But we're to be charged with rioting because of today's events. And in that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. It's interesting that we find that twice in the Mosaic Law, it stipulates what we refer to today as due process. Deuteronomy 17 and 19, it says basically... A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That one person can't level an accusation against another person and have that become a reason for prosecution. There has to be two or three people who will testify that they saw, they heard, they witnessed something that had taken place. The same was really repeated by Jesus when he talked about the governance of the church how are we supposed to deal with conflict in our midst? Jesus put it, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. In fact, twice Paul said to the Corinthians and again to Timothy, do not accept an, or receive an accusation or charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And Solomon added that when we're dealing with stuff, facts matter. In Proverbs 18, 18, 13, he said, he who answers a matter before he hears the facts, it is folly and shame to him. So when we read about the temple goers exploding in violence based upon a confused and unfounded accusation against Paul, we're even told that's the case because as a centurion tries to figure out why do these people want to kill this guy, generally you'd think that they would have a reason. It's that some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another and the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar. And so I think we have to kind of ask the question, why did they react so unbiblically? These are people who follow the word of God. Why are they reacting so unbiblically? Why did they do it so quickly? I mean, explosively, it's almost like they were charged and looking for an opportunity to react. And besides, shouldn't they have known better? Well, let me give you some information that will be news to you. Knowing better <laughs> is not synonymous with doing better. We all know that. We all have lived that. We've been there. We've done that. 
But what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 7, I think really hits it on the head, where he says, surely oppression or injustice makes a wise man mad. If you want to be really colloquial and literal in the translation, it makes him flip out like a madman. We become reactive. You ever notice that sometimes that people's response is way out of proportion to the stimulus? And that's because there's something building up inside. There's a, there's a backlog of dynamic going on and all you have to do is just kind of push on it and it splurts out all over the place. And what that tells us is the issue that has become the issue usually is not really the issue. There's something that lies deeper down. My wife, of course, has been subject to this many times from the guy that she lives with. You know, it's... Uh, Uh, I'll just kind of respond over the top. I never lose my temper. I always know where it's at. (laughs) But she will step back and go, what What is that all about? (laughs) And I'll step back and go, oh, sorry about that. (laughs) Something's eating at me. We all understand this dynamic. We all know that. And we need to understand when we look at people who react far in excess of what makes sense, that what they're reacting to is not what they're verbalizing or even what they're focusing on. There's something deeper inside. You see, unfortunately, even normally rational people can be pushed too far. Which is why Solomon twice warns us that just believing what you're doing is right doesn't necessarily make what you're doing right. As he said in Proverbs 14, again in 16, he says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. This is one of the dangerous dynamics of human personality. We have a capacity for self-justification. We have a capacity to rationalize just about anything that we might do. Now, we might want to classify you as being narcissistic or sociopathic or psychopathic. And if you fit into any of those categories, you know, there's a church down the road that's waiting for you. But we, <laughs> we don't want to deal with that, right? But I mean, to some degree, we all suffer from that. We tend to see the world through the lens of our own eyes and to interpret things in the light of what's most favorable to us. And one of the hardest things for us to do is to own our own sins and our own transgressions. I had a thought that came to me uh, the other day that was very illustrative to me because I was, I was talking in one of my daily devotionals about how that you know, the Bible says our, we are, our bodies are like jars of clay and that God has put the treasure of his Holy Spirit in us. And in doing that, we become the temple, the container of the Holy Spirit. And it suddenly played out in my mind. I think, what do you have when you have a, a jar with a lid on it? You have a, something that has potential, but it's not doing anything. Man, I've been to the store many times with my wife and I've seen these jars and they have something in it. We've never bought a jar, a seal jar, with nothing in it. Because we buy it for the content that's there. And yet many of us are in life without Christ and we are like those jars when we have seal lids on us but we are empty inside. And we don't understand why do I feel so empty inside and the answer is because you're empty inside. But when we come to Christ and we simply say, God, I admit that I am empty. I admit that there's a great void, a great vacuum inside of me that desires to be filled. You give the permission to God to take the lid and break that seal and suddenly Jesus come into my heart and his Holy Spirit flows into that vessel and he wraps himself around your soul. And the wonderful thing is not only at that point do you become a jar without a seal or a lid on it, you begin to have rivers of living water that kind of spill out over the edges. And one day when that jar cracks and breaks and is tossed away and is no longer of use, that spirit which is wrapped around your soul transmits you into the heavenly presence of God and we become embodied by God himself. Thank you. I'm looking forward to that day. (laughs) But what we have to understand is that when people don't have anything on the inside, 
they start striking out. They start, they start doing wild and crazy, even violent things, angry things, because that emptiness is so unbearable. That hollowness on the inside, that lack of meaning and purpose and, and the possession. We have no possession of the thing that we were created to possess. The container remains empty. And as a result, many times people do crazy stuff. Some people will try to consume everything they can get their hands on. Food, drugs, alcohol, whatever the thing is. They just fill themselves up with everything they can. They wonder, why doesn't that satisfy? Other people, in a point of frustration, will simply begin to become angry and violent and vitriolic. And so that when you look at a culture that is going through social and moral upheaval, it's important for us to see beyond the emptiness of the container and realize it's because they don't have the Spirit of God living inside of them. That here are people in the temple who are deeply religious, fervent for their faith. Paul says as much about them, and yet they're acting in this incredibly violent and destructive and nonsensical way. That many of the people who are trying to grab him and pull him apart and put him to death don't even know why they're doing it. And that's always the problem of mob reaction. You know, mob activity is, is so anonymous. And I don't say this out of school. I mean, when I was, I was a student at UC Berkeley in, in the late 60s, I was a member of the Students for a, a Democratic Society, which was basically a Marxist organization. And I was involved in a couple of riots, and I learned to distinguish the different flavors of tear gas. And I also knew that nothing to do with politics. It had nothing to do with social justice. It had nothing to do with Marxist idealism. It was all about trying to fill this deep chasm in my soul with something that was real. Now, I will say that the tear gas did persuade me that that wasn't necessarily the way to fill my soul. If you've never been tear gassed, you have no idea how painful that is. But I do understand that when I met Christ not too long after that, it was suddenly I knew that that was what I had been looking for the whole time. And I think we need to transfer that perspective to some of the wild and violent and crazy stuff that we see going in our country that we can fall into the same point of view saying, well, there's a political solution or there's a police solution. And I'm not saying that politics and police don't pay a part in it. They do. But it's never really going to get resolved in people's lives, whether you're talking about corporately or individually, until they've had an encounter with the thing that they're really looking for. And Francis Thomas Thompson wrote a great poem, epic poem, the, about the hound of heaven, where he said, I spent all of my years running and running. I could hear the footsteps pounding behind me, and I would run harder and faster and longer to escape their, their sound. And one day, in exhaustion, I gave up, and I surrendered, and I turned around, and I suddenly realized he whom I had been fleeing all my life was the one I had been looking for. And we live in a time where men and women need to realize what they're running from is the very thing that they desire the most. They want peace. They want justice. They want equity. They want all those things, the, the fairness and all the things that every one of us wants in life. And yet oftentimes they end up doing the very things that will create the dynamic which will cost them the most. For the Jews in this story, what it cost them was everything. For many of them, it cost them their lives. It cost them their temple. It cost them their city. It cost them their nation. It cost them everything. Because there's something in the riotous mindset of a mob that is also very nihilistic and anarchistic. It doesn't know how to create. And so it destroys. And one of the things I think is critically important for us as followers of Jesus Christ is to understand that God abhors violence. 
Remember in Genesis 6, God destroyed the earth. And the reason he gave in verse 11 was he said, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. The word corrupt there is a little softer than the original, actually. It doesn't mean just being corrupt, like people are dishonest, lie, cheat, and steal, but it means perverted. It means it's been changed from its original purpose, that man was behaving in the complete contradiction to everything God had called good and true and right. And he said it manifested itself. How? It manifests itself in violence. Because they had, in the process, much like our own times, we so devalue human life that we don't count it serious to destroy it. That's why the psalmist said, the one who loves the violence, God's soul hates. God hates people who love violence. I remember being in some of those riots in Berkeley and I was shocked, you know. I mean, I, to be the truth, I kind of went along just because it was, a, it was a happening. It was something to do and I had the night off. But being in the midst of a riot where people started destroying stuff was really kind of surprising to see the almost demonic violence. It, was, it felt demonic <laughs> to see the violence that would come out of some of these people that I would be rampaging through the streets with. For me, it started out as we're just going to be on a lark, and suddenly these people were destroying everything. And one of the things that always amazed me was that they usually chose their victims very carefully. They usually decide if we're going to destroy a store, it's going to be Nike or Gucci or something like that. They, they passed up Walmart. <laughs> so at least if they're destructive, they have good taste. But it was always destructive. What's also instructive, I think, for us is when we begin to listen to Paul addressing the crowd, and it's going to take me a couple weeks to really kind of explore this section that we're in. No way I could get my mind around everything that's taking place here. But it's pretty evident that they had not gotten the divine message about anger. They had become what I would say is totally tone deaf. Now, Jesus said something really interesting. He said, don't throw your pearls before swine because not only will they trample them under their feet, but then they'll turn around and they'll attack you. And that's always an interesting moment to me. I remember years ago, I was in a park in Denver, Colorado. I would go around passing out tracts, sharing the gospel with whoever would listen to me. And I came up to one guy and he said, I don't want to hear it. I said, well, you know, it's really important. This is the gospel, heaven and hell, blah, blah, blah. He says, listen, I don't want to hear it. I've already done that. I don't want anything to do with it. Now, I just want you to go away and leave me alone. I said, well, you know, I understand how you feel. But, and I was trying to, I was trying to do like Paul was doing. You know, you're trying to reason with people. And finally, he said to me, listen, if you don't get out of my face, I'm going to cave your face in with my fist. And so I decided that moment I was casting my pearls before swine. I mean, I thought, okay. So I walked away and got about 30 feet away and said, but if you don't exceed Jesus, they're going to go to hell. <laughs> I'm sure he got saved after that. But, <laughs> but it was amazing to me to have such, see somebody who had such vitriolic resentment and hatred towards Christianity. They they couldn't even stand listening to the gospel message. Someone once said, when you throw a rock into a pack of dogs and you hear a yelp, you know you hit one. When people react to the fact that you're a Christian and you, and you share your faith, you realize that they're much closer to that faith than you realize. That their reaction is proportionate to something else going on in their life. That you have touched on something that has brought to the surface the fact that they are out of fellowship with God, they are distant from God, that they are on a fast track to eternal hell. And you've just touched on it. And they don't want anything to do with it. I don't want to hear about it. You know the people scare me? It's when you start talking to them about the Lord and they go, oh, that's so wonderful. I think everybody needs a little religion. I'm so glad you found that. You probably needed that. Those are the people that concern me because I realize... They are completely tone deaf. <laughs> They're not going to rend you. They're going to say, isn't that nice? 
But you see, the idea of casting pearls before swine is such a ridiculous illustration, and that's what it's meant to say, that when we offer the gospel to somebody and they react to us very negatively, we realize that they not only see the value of what we're offering, but they're so wounded by it that they want to just bury it, and they'll attack you. Jesus, at that moment, it's time to just kind of move on and leave them in God's hands. But you see, that anger, that, that even envy, the resentment, the bitterness, are such toxic things in people's lives. And we have a culture that is just growing in those things. And that's why it's so interesting that Paul, rather than cowering in fear behind the soldiers, maybe because he'd been in so many riots or the object of so many riots, the focal point of so many riots, maybe he just kind of got used to it. I don't know. But it amazes me because if I had been him, I would have been hiding behind the the soldiers and saying, get me out of here as quick as you can. You know, arrest me and throw me in the patrol car and drive away. Instead, what he's doing is saying, wait, 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 wait. let's not be too quick. Let's wait a moment. Let me, let me talk to them. I don't know whether Paul had just become so accustomed to it or the Holy Spirit was so profoundly heavy on him in that moment that he was really removed by God into a different space. And that happens many times for Christians when they find themselves in very crazy, adversarial, dangerous situations that somehow the Holy Spirit, if we're open to it, can become so profoundly present in us in that moment that we're really kind of outside of our natural selves. We're operating in a zone that is not naturally us, is not ordinary us, and we find ourselves like Stephen as he's being stoned, looking up to heaven and not saying, please God, save me, but rather saying, I see Jesus. And he's not sitting on the right hand of the Father. He is standing on the right hand of the Father. He's standing up and he's waiting to receive me into eternity. We often speculate, did that have some impact upon Paul as he's watching all of this? How much did that lend to his decision, that vision from heaven, where this, as he's a persecutor of the church, he suddenly has this guy who isn't afraid to die, isn't afraid of the consequences of what he's done, but rather is rejoicing in the very moment. Paul stands up on the steps that are leading into the fortress. He turns and he addresses them in their native dialect, which was a kind of a Hebraized Aramaic, some say in Hebrew, some texts say in Aramaic. It's probably really uh, Hebrew with an Aramaic accent, is most likely. And he shares that, he says, I'm, I'm one of you. I'm just like you. I'm not better than you. You see, that's, that's, a, that's an amazing place to begin any kind of conversation with somebody. That, yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of like you. I often share my testimony when I'll tell people, the profound sacrifices I made coming to Christ. You know, I was young. I was stupid. I had no future. Gave it all up for Jesus. That's my testimony. But you see, there's a simple reality that I'm not anything special. I wasn't anything special. But I had this profound encounter with the God of the universe that I was blind as a bat to the things that mattered. And somehow God miraculously took the veil from my eyes. He popped the lid off the jar. And for the first time in my life, I realized how incredibly empty and, and, and unfulfilled I was. As he stands up, he says, I am a Jew. I'm just like you. I was brought up in this city. I didn't, I didn't just visit here at feast festival time, I grew up in this city. I was thoroughly trained in the law under the greatest of teachers of the law, the most respected rabbis. I was just as jealous, zealous for God as you are. I even persecuted the way, the term by which Christians were known at that point. But then he goes on to share how God changed him. First by a vision, and then by a trance. 
all confirming to him that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, and that there was no way to the Father but through him. And yet, interestingly, in the moment he mentions his mission, <laughs> that God said, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Just the very mention of the Gentiles, they instantaneously erupt in rage. You see, what happened to them is they become completely consumed with their bitternesses and their resentments and their hostilities. That their list of offenses was long and they could validate them and Get, point to chapter and verse of how they had been done wrong by this person, that person, and, and, and all the unfairness of it, how they were being impoverished so they could enrich this group of ungodly people who just rub it in their face and on and on and on. They were fully enveloped in, in what the, the book of Hebrews describes as the root of bitterness. A thing that Paul warned you and I against when he said in Ephesians 4, 26, he said, in your anger, do not sin. It's an interesting phrase, really. In your anger, do not sin. In other words, there are things that we get angry about. And, and, and there are things we should be angry about. There are things that happen in our, in our world, in our society that are just wrong and, and there's this normal response is to become angry. And before you really beat yourself up by getting angry about something, understand that God says he gets angry at stuff. And sometimes his anger comes to a fullness and he brings judgment. Now he can do that because he's righteous and pure in all his ways. Usually I can't. Because the moment I become angry with something somebody else does, God begins to show me that I am guilty of exactly the same thing. Paul said to the Galatians in the beginning of the sixth chapter, he says, if you see your brother and he is overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, I think that includes us here, right? Go to him in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Recognizing that... <laughs> You understand the wrong of what they're doing because you have at the very least thought of it yourself. Maybe have actually done it yourself. But here's the problem. He says, when you get angry, he says, be careful that it doesn't overtake you and begin to control you. That we're not controlled by angry moments, but we're controlled by the Holy Spirit because he says, if you don't, you will give the devil a foothold in your life. And believe me, you do not want to give the devil a foothold in your life. My daily prayer is, Lord, deliver me from temptation and keep the evil one from me and reveal to me if there's any place where the enemy has found a foothold in my life and is beginning to exploit it in my life because I know that he won't settle for a little bit. He will continue to press until he controls the whole of me. And here's the irony of this temple crowd. These people go to the temple, the house of prayer, to seek God that they might honor him and be filled with him. And what they instead were filled with was anger, rage, and hatred and irrationality and the anonymity of the mob, which enables you to do stuff that you'll never be held accountable to do because you're just part of the mob. And as a result... You become the very perpetrator of the thing that you condemn. So Paul said there's a daily housekeeping process that we need to go through in his letter to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter. He says, get rid of all bitterness. Identify things that you're bitter about. Get rid of all rage and, and the anger and, and the brawling and the slander and along with any form of malice, you know what malice is, it's, it's where you sit back and think how you're going to get even. You ever have those conversations? Well, if they say this to me, then I'm going to say that to them. And if they say that, then I'll say this. And you start playing this little game about, uh, gotcha. In contrast, he said, we should seek to be kind. We should seek to be compassionate. We should seek to be forgiving of each other just as Christ in God forgave you. Forgave you. 
I think this is really a timely word for us today. We live in a world, a, a culture, and a society where there's a lot of things to be angry about. Injustice on every level is, is pretty rampant. And to a large degree because corruption is rife. It seems like anything, almost everything has a price tag on it. We see oppression growing and suppression of rights increasing. We, we see lawlessness all around us and yet it's even celebrated by some as being somehow justified. So when riotous mobs run rampant and as innocents are attacked, the temptation to respond in kind is, is powerful and great. And my great fear is that as the church begins to see more and more pressures placed upon it and more opposition from our culture that we will not turn to the word, we will not turn to prayer as much as we will turn to responding in kind, giving them what they gave to us. We'll fight fire with fire. And the problem with that reasoning is that all that fire does is destroy can't build anything. And Jesus gave a simple warning in Matthew 26, 52. He says, all who draw the sword will die by the sword. You know, some have erroneously, wrongly interpreted what Jesus is saying as saying it's wrong for you to own a sword. You can't even carry one. Um, even if you have a concealed carry permit. But if you look at it rightly, Paul's, Jesus' emphasis wasn't on the sword. <laughs> he says it's the drawing of the sword. It's, it's the initiation of violence. Not to protect oneself from violence. Self-defense is a biblical concept. And I have a podcast, which you can listen to. We'll go through it de in detail. God does not forbid self-defense. Rather, he's condemning the use of violence as a way of getting our way, getting what we want, of controlling the narrative or silencing things we don't want to hear. It's important that we know that Jesus never resorted to violence, although he quite easily could have. He could have made his point. He could have eliminated his foes. But rather what he used was words to persuade, to challenge, to confront. And maybe because as James put it so simply in his, in his, his little short book, in chapter one, verse 20, he says, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The problem with anger is it really shuts down your rational mind. When we become angry in our response, we do not act reasonably. We do not act rationally. We just react. It's the fear, the flight and fight dynamic where we either run away from something we should be willing to stand up to or else we attack something because we figure that's how we can control the moment. Angry people are the most threatened and insecure people on the planet. But violence is becoming a way of life in America. In just the last year, violent crimes have increased by 40%. Murder has increased by 30%. The highest level since we started keeping record a violent crime. What's even more unbelievable is that 40% of Americans, mostly younger people, younger liberals, progressives, and plus even some Christians, believe that violence against a political adversary is justifiable. It's justifiable to use violence against somebody that I disagree with because they don't hold the same views that I do. But I think if we don't want to end up like the Jews did in this story, then it's important to remember the words of Jesus when he said, blessed are the peacemakers. Literally, the word in original means the lovers of peace. Blessed are those people who love peace 
for they will be called the sons of God. What does it mean to, to love peace? Well, Jesus went on to explain a little bit. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, you have to understand that you're gonna face opposition if you stand on the truth of scripture. But he said, that's an evidence that you're an heir of the kingdom of heaven. That your kingdom is not here upon this earth, but your kingdom is in eternity. He said, blessed are you when people insult you. I'm still working on finding the blessing in that. I, I get it fairly often, and I'm, I'm really searching for that blessing, but I believe it's in there someplace. You can pray for me. When they persecute you and, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Because he says, great is your reward in heaven. And I think it's so interesting that he goes on to say, for you are the salt of the earth. Now, for many of us, our problem is we keep the salt inside the shaker. It never gets out there and seasons the world. We need to let God shake it out of us. But if that salt loses its saltiness, if it no longer has its distinctive flavor, <clears throat> and that's what happened in Israel. It happened all the time. If you go to the Dead Sea, you can find, you can just reach down into the water and you can pick up big chunks of salt. Well, it's not just salt. There's rock and other things in it. Lots of, there's like 40 different chemicals inside of it. So I wouldn't advise you eating it or rubbing your eyes. But in Jesus' day, they would sell these chunks of salt to people and they would break them up and they would pick out the salt to use in seasoning their food or drying their meats or fish or different things. And eventually you get down to there was more dirt, rock and gravel and other pieces of refuse in there the salt was all gone he said the saltiness was gone and all it was good for they'd take it outside and they would throw it on the pathways because there was enough things to kill the weeds and keep the path clear but it wasn't good enough to season anything it's just good enough to be trampled upon and Jesus warns about that in our lives too that there can become such an admixture of wrong things and we live in such a crazy environment today that we can have all sorts of things coming at us from all sorts of directions. We have this information overload and we can end up with such an admixture of crazy ideas and thoughts. Well, it drives people crazy and they react really irrationally. I think it's important for us that when, even when he goes on to say, you are the light of the world, he says, your faith should be visible not invisible. And we're in a culture that's pressing us to keep our faith invisible so people can't see it. He says, no, let your light shine. You know, I always love it when we're on the Sea of Galilee and look out of our hotel window across the lake and there's a little tiny town up in the very top of the Golan, the mountains of Galilee and you can see a light in the middle of the night and it just draws your eyes right to it. He says, you are like that little light. It draws everybody's attention to it. The worst thing you can do is cover it up so it can't be seen. The only man who covers the light is the one who does not want to be seen. We're coming to an era where there's just increasing pressure for you not to let your light shine, to keep that suppressed, and basically stop speaking the truth about sin and immorality and ungodliness. Stop worrying about being controversial because here, here's an alert. <laughs> Did you understand the gospel is inherently controversial? <laughs> if you preach the gospel, you're gonna get, you're gonna become controversial. And there are gonna be people who are offensive unless you don't preach the whole gospel. You say, to well, you know, God loves everybody and we're all going to heaven. Then you're not preaching the gospel. You're preaching Hinduism, but you're not preaching the gospel. The gospel says there's a choice. Christ died to save men from hell. And if you don't believe on him, well, how, you know, you know John 3.16. <laughs> For God so loved the world, he gave his only son so that we wouldn't perish, which means that people will perish if they reject the gospel message. It's controversial. And thirdly, be prepared to be persecuted. Why? 
Because there's nothing that Satan hates worse and fears more than people who are verbal about their faith. Terrifies him. Terrifies him. And he will do everything to get you to shut up. And lastly, speak clearly. Don't... You know, one of my most common criticisms is that, uh, that I am not very tactful in how I say what I say and that I, I could say it more tastefully. I practiced. I've stood in front of the mirror and saying, do you know, my friend, that uh, in the eyes of God that your behavior is a perversion and an abomination? And, and I, I mean this in the most gentle way I can say it. You're going to go into hell for eternity and you're going to face a torture you can't even begin to imagine. I'm still working on that. Because I found that no matter how, I, even if I whisper it, they aren't happy to hear it. And maybe part of that is simply by telling people, you know, I was, I was where you were at. I, I looked at things the same way you did. I felt the same way I did. And, and then there was this profound encounter that I had with God. Now I confess, I'm a name dropper. I try to impress people. I drop names I tell them stuff like, I know God personally. <laughs> Jesus Christ is, actually, we're brothers. I mean, we're, you know, so I, I know some people in some pretty high places. <laughs> Brad Pitt, never heard of him. Is he going there? Oh. <laughs> You'll get it. Tomorrow morning, you wipe up and go, oh, I got it. <laughs> But friends, we, we, we just have to realize that anger is oftentimes an expression of fear. And over and over again, God says so many times, do not be afraid. In the world, he said, you'll have troubles, Jesus said, but in me, I have overcome the world. I look at the boldness of Paul and I realize he was a man who understood what mattered most. Father, I pray that you'd help us to have clarity in our own thinking and our own understanding and that we would know how to navigate our lives and negotiate situations in a way that would enable us to not just live effectively for you, but Lord, to be able to know the joy of knowing that when it came down to it, we stood for what was right and true and good knowing that one day that we will, this clay jar that we're in, it'll, it'll crack and fall apart and be gone. And yet we're not hopeless, but rather very hopeful because our soul is wrapped and clothed in the Holy Spirit of God and we will go to be in your presence. But help us to be courageous to you in the times that we're living even as they may become far more perilous than we even imagined. Help us to be courageous in you and not to waver in our faith, we ask in Jesus' name.